Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Howdy, folks. Summer is here, and you know what that means. It's time for dancing in the streets. If you're too young to catch that, Google it. It's also a great time before planning starts in the fall for this episode. It's not about strategy or tactics or building your marketing team this week. It's about capabilities. We're going way back to basics to do a mindset reset on what marketing actually means and how we can serve our customers better. And if you're new here or if possibly forgotten, I'll just remind you that Life Science Marketing Radio is more than a podcast. It's a custom content studio where we turn conversations into content so you can build an engaged audience. Now, let's dive right in. All right, my guest today is Dr. Michelle Benton. She's the CEO and founder of Lime, a life science strategy and capability company. She's a hardcore marketer who's an expert in transformational change with a degree in organizational development from Cornell and a certificate in global transformational leadership from Wharton and a PhD in social and behavioral sciences. Maybe the first PhD of that type I've had (laughs) on this. Oh, great. So, yeah. So she spent the first part of her career in a global life science uh, companies in uh, across a range of consumer B2B and pharma inline marketing leadership roles. Following that, she had a or led a marketing transformation initiative at a major global pharma company and later headed up marketing and sales capability before leaving to start Lime in 2015. Michelle, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thank you, Chris. I'm so excited. Um, I love the platform that you give and the special attention to life science marketers. I, there's not a lot of places that do that, and so it's great to have a home. So thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. This will be fun. So tell us um, tell us what Lime, what you're doing at Lime, because it's different than most marketing strategy consultancies that I've talked to for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's not a training company. It's not a strategy company. It really is about transforming life science marketing in organizations. And what we do is really help leaders, teams, organizations cultivate proven market ingredients, those things that are going to grow profit. And at the same time, really make sure that, you know, our partners, they're relevant, they're differentiated, and most important, they stay human in today's global and digital world. I mean, and our work spans a number of areas. Yes, we do training. We, we work on novel skill building programs for life science marketers. Um, but we also look at things like leadership and culture shifting initiatives, and also um, the unglamorous but oh so important nuts and bolts of designing, you know, marketing processes and tools and competencies. And as our team and I, we often talk about really trying to put the life back into life science marketing. You mentioned culture shift in there. So can we just dive into that or just describe it briefly? Because I just love talking about culture. 
I know. It's like that mysterious enigma. <laughs> uh, what is it? An enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a riddle or something yeah. like that, as uh, Churchill said. You know, I, th- <laughs> I think marketing, you know, it is a culture shift to drive marketing. And unlike a consumer packaged good company where marketing is the driving force and there's a lot of systems and processes and culture to support it, you know, in life sciences, I, I think that marketing is often treated as a second class citizen. Um, and what you're trying to do is evoke a culture shift in order to set up and re- reconfigure the organization to be successful with customers. Um, you know, a lot of it, it's interesting, you know, you look at the legacy of the industry, it's not that anybody's bad or did something wrong. I mean, the beginnings, it makes sense, right? It's a, it used to be a very doctor-driven, um, in-person sales influenced the decision-making, and marketing really served more of a marketing support function. They shepherded the product through development through the market, and then they also made sure that sales had what they need to be successful. And, you know, sales knows best. And that was incredibly successful for decades. So, um, you know, you had marketers filling roles, you know, they were former, by former salespeople. You didn't hire classically trained marketers, didn't require an MBA because all that was needed was to know the customer best in that personal selling, right? Know the doctor best. And we really did see a sense of urgency probably until around the 2000s when you had the healthcare market go from fragmentation to consolidation, right? And we all know the pressures we were facing in trying to, you know, sustain our our profit and sales as decision makers and payers were consolidating. Um, And and that started to create a little bit of pressure. And um, you had sort of the rise of consumer choice happening at the same time. And all of a sudden, this longstanding model, this guaranteed profits, guaranteed revenue, uh, no longer was assured. Um, add on digitization and technology, and you know, and all of a sudden marketing is coming into the fore. And you do see marketing, I mean, you do see organizations and leaders recognize it. So it's not that marketing isn't seen as, as central, but the reality is your leaders are been in this industry for decades, and most of them have grown up in sales themselves. Um, very few have grown grown up in a very classic marketing environment, and there's still biases and implicit things that drive instinct. And so, I think that's a lot of behind where marketing is is perceived and sort of situated in companies today. Yeah, it makes sense. You talk about you know a lot of marketers having come from sales in the instrumentation side, where I come from. A lot of the marketers come from science or the lab but yet the same thing not a lot of classically trained marketers and the goal for everybody is to create a market right that's that's what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. is to find out what customers want and then tell a story that makes them go huh i should find out a little bit more about that thing whether it's a you know a therapy or a piece of equipment right um so um one of my favorite episodes was one of my first episodes with an old boss, uh, Taya Urgeta, and she talked about how marketing communications can change a company just by laying out some things. And um, I think you have a view on that as well, and it goes beyond Marcom. So how can marketers change the culture or the way things are done in a company? Well, let's define what we mean by marketing, because when you introduce the term Marcoms, marketing communications, marketing has come to mean so many different things. And I think it's really important to 
define marketing not in the spans of just marketing communication or the slew of digital buzzwords you know that we hear floating around it's really at the core of thinking about marketers as marketing to mean to know the customer better than they know themselves then be able to identify opportunities to solve their problems right your point about building and creating a market and then bringing them value and delivering that to them. So marketing really has to span that whole gamut. It's not the Gary V downstream, let's create some content. That, that's an important point, but we really need to think about marketing holistically. So the first thing is, let's if we define, we take that view of marketing, then that's the root of how you can um, help your company and, and bring back that relevance, right? So if by embracing that notion, you can help your company make sense of customers, make sense of their context. It's a mess out there. It's, it's especially post COVID, you know, expectations have changed. Someone, the company needs people to be able to, to navigate that and help bring that together and help sort through and prioritize and um, really be able to lead the way forward because there's limited resources. So whether we like it or not, people, time, money, they are, they are limited. And um, we have to figure out the best way, the best market available to us with the resources available. And, you know, it's, you know, it's not the, I think the biggest issue that life science companies have is they're not con- customer oriented. And I know everyone <laughs> will stop and say, no, no. Um, it, let me kind of unpack that a little bit. I say they're not customer oriented. I, I believe that most companies care about customers, but they work from the inside out, right? So they start with the company, they start with their products, they start with their therapy areas, and then figure out how to push it, you know, from the inside out to the marketplace. And when you see what great marketing is, it's just the opposite. Um, they work from the outside in. They start with what the customer needs and brings that inward into the company. And listen, I mean, the reason everyone stays in this industry so long is because we genuinely care. It's not that we are cold or you know, not passionate or you know, profit hungry or anything. We, we do care, we genuinely care, we're so passionate. And for many people, I mean, these therapy areas are very personal, you know, someone's relative, someone's spouse, someone's child. So, I mean, this is really, um, we care. So it's not to suggest that, but the framework by which we approach is flawed. And if we start from the outside in, we start with the customer, that is where, you know, we can really start to make a difference. And it's hard to do it from the inside because, we don't share a lot of the same traits as many of our patients. Um, we're in a different socioeconomic bracket. We have amazing healthcare coverage. Um, we understand very complicated disease states. I mean, even I think about your um, your time in instrumentation, right? We Someone who's in the seat doing marketing gets all of the technical stuff. Our patients don't necessarily have, have that ability. So what we have to be able to do, and when I talk about truly being customer oriented, is to be able to walk in the shoes of our patients, our physicians, you know, other people through the, the whole entire ecosystem, and be able to figure out how do we do it from their point of view? And when we do that, the perceptions of the industry, I think, will actually change. I had a question while you began there about um, outside in because, you know, a patient doesn't know what therapy they need or what instrument they need or a customer yeah. doesn't necessarily know what an instrument can do. So how do you meet them where they are? I recently went to a 
digital health conference, and that was kind of a big theme that we don't necessarily understand what their life is like day to day with their challenge Mm -hmm. and tie that into why they would consider a therapy or ask their doctor about something. Yeah, I I really think, you know, when we, we talk a lot, our, our, one of our big cornerstones is around customer obsession and it's being able to remove yourself from your stance and be able to shift and see the world from another. I mean, a lot of in my early days, especially in marketing, you know, you go to Walmart and you hang out and you see what people are doing and what are they shopping for and what is the line like in the pharmacy and how are they talking and what conversations I, you know, used to stalk people didn't see. I mean, I don't think, you know, I would try not to be creepy about it, but, you know, really being a student of popular culture, um, a student of how everyday people are dealing with things and imagining the world where you you don't have some of those options. I mean, it's really interesting when I shifted out of um, big company and moved into my own practice, I moved from a fully funded healthcare plan into buying a plan on the open market. And let me tell you, it is extremely diff- difficult and different. Um, fortunately, still with socioeconomic, it, you know, we didn't have some of the pain points that I can only imagine someone in a different bracket might face. And so how are you creating empathy? How are you really removing your lens, being incredibly aware, self-aware, so that you can truly understand and know? Um, ethnography, I think it's trying to be a daily ethnographer and, and really being able to do it. But it's a thought process, right? So when you're in organizations, it's so easy to start talking about us and our sales goals and our features and benefits and how are we how are those conversations changing so that we're talking about the customer when i was talking earlier about leadership and the difference between sort of life science leadership and time that i spent in consumer packaged goods leadership the conversations around the table are very different you hear customer consumer driven conversations going on around conference rooms and consumer packaged goods in ways that you have to really force that. And I think if we can just make that shift, that's our Monday morning, you know, one step is really being able to make that shift from an inside out to an outside in stance. That's, that's half the battle right there. Yeah. Empathy, all those things. I, I can imagine that most of us who are in positions like you or I, unless we really try hard, as you say, to go hang out at Walmart or something, Mm -hmm. can't even imagine what what our customers' lives are like yeah. around the thing that we're trying to sell them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, so, their lives aren't revolving around your product either. Yeah. Right? So, exactly. Um, it, I think that's right. It's like they're not sitting it's up going, a, "Oh my gosh, I saw that ad," or "Oh gosh," you know. It, it's just it's so much on top of their busy lives, and I think right, you know, post COVID, it's only you know, only exaggerated on their list. Um, so sales training, salespeople go to all kinds of training beyond product training. But I never hear anybody say, oh, we're going to do a marketing training. So, And we just seem to follow trends like what are marketers (laughs) doing these days, right? And I'm guilty for sure. Yeah, That's why there's a podcast. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) talk about why don't we do that. Well, well, and not only just training, but is the training mandatory, right? Sales training. It's interesting, right? We would never dream 
of putting a sales representative in front of a customer without them going through weeks of mandatory training, assessments, uh, skill validation, and then we'll let you go do your job. And that's, we hire, you know, most life science marketing or life science companies are hiring experienced sales folks. So it's not like you're taking a junior person and wanting to, to have them. I mean, they take a seasoned people and they put them through training and certify them before they go out in front of customers. And we put marketers in front of million dollar decisions about resources and messaging and strategy with no training. And if there's training, it's like, eh, it's yeah, optional. Yeah, have at it. Okay, well, let's have their leaders mentor them. Yeah, right, you have at it, exactly. And the leaders could mentor them, but the leaders themselves haven't come from a marketing background. So you don't have that apprenticeship in the way that you might see it in a consumer goods company. And I think it goes back to this notion of marketers as second-class citizens, right? It, marketing needs to be treated as a profession, first of all. And what do we do in professions? We provide ongoing training, and that training is expected for skill building. And then who does the training? Well, the people who do the training are people who have experience. You'd be surprised the number of companies out there that offer life science marketing training who don't have people on staff with on-the-ground experience in marketing. They might have dabbled a little bit, but generally they've come from a science or a sales or business development or something like that. And it's just fascinating to me how are we, you know, it, life science, life sciences is a critical, I mean, it's a really serious industry. And we have to make sure we get this right when it comes to building the skills in the program. You know, and, it, and it's not easy. I mean, so, I'll, you know, caveat it with, you know, our, our demands in life science marketing are unique, right? It's, a, it's highly regulated. There's all these stakeholders and decision-making process. Um, you know, a lot of, as I said, societal stakes, are, you know, are really big. And the two things we continue to hear from marketers is, one, um, I want to hear about great marketing, right? Chris, you were talking about trends and let's keep on top of the trends. And then they hear about the trends and they're like, well, that was interesting what they did in blue chip or in consumer goods or PR, but I'm not sure what that means to me because I can't do any of those things. I don't have a brick and mortar situation, right? And so it's very hard for them to understand how to take those great ideas and action them in their own work. Um, and it's, you know, it has to be very, practical. So not only in the training do you need someone with the skills, but it has to be able to translate those practices into something that you can do in your day job, right? So there's a bit of this translator role that um, the professional trainer needs to play. And I think the other is just the reality of how swamped marketers are. I mean, if you open up anybody, I'm sure any of these listeners, if you are opening up your calendar, you probably have at least half your day booked, you're probably double booked at least twice this week. Um, there's no space. And when there's no space for training, it's like, listen, I want to learn more. I want to keep on top of trends. I want to do different things. Um, but it's there's too much going on. I have too many meetings. I have too many things I need to do. And I don't have time to be out of the office. Um, I don't have time to stop and do this extra work. I've got I've to get these other things done first. And so training needs to be practical for the, the what you want someone to do, but also served up in a way that it weaves into their daily work and it becomes very doable. And I think those unique dynamics make it, you know, make it a challenge to skill up and to help our marketers be those type of internal leaders that we need them to be in today's times. Yes. So that's, that's sort of a bugaboo of mine. And you probably triggered a little bit of my imposter syndrome, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> like, Based on people I've talked to and just observations in my own 
work in industry. Do you think that, I mean, if we were better trained as marketers and learned to focus, we could actually have more time. But because we're not as successful as we could be, we're doing too many things. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's actually a chicken or egg because it is both, right? I mean, you need the capacity to be able to understand the customer, to be able to make sense of this, and to be able to process it. I mean, how many times people think about, oh, segment, got my segment, got my customer insight, check the box, let me move on to the tactics, right? So tactics are easy because they're things that we can touch and see. Um, So you need to have that space to be able to set clear priorities so that you have good direction, so you have focused projects. And if you don't have the thought process, then there's not time for the training. So also that only creates that that closed loop. So I do think, you know, we talk a lot. And one of the things actually we build a lot into um, the work that we do is how are we creating capacity? Because quite frankly, if we don't create capacity, there's no space to build skills. And if we don't create capacity, there's no space to execute the skills, right? I could teach you how to do a great process for customer insight. And let's say I squeezed a few hours out of your day and you did it. But then if you don't have time to actually try out a new skill or have the space to do the thinking, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you get a lot of currency for being busy, right? Stuff we're doing, tactics, meetings, emails. But there isn't this sort of same premium on the thinking process, right? I mean, are we rewarding people for sitting, looking out the window for two hours, contemplating this disparate data they're seeing to come up with a brilliant insight? No, no. And, and the person would feel very anxious trying to do that because that time is such a luxury. And so I think that's a, you know, we talk about culture shifting, sort of this premium away from busyness and stuff and more about ideas and thinking and the synthesis and the marination of ideas. Um, we should be thinking about how do we create that type of, of culmination. So capacity actually is a kind of a, a bit of a dual-edged sword if you um, aren't able to do it. And then you get locked in that loop and, and you really can't, can't move forward. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's sort of the world we live in now, unfortunately. I mean, yeah, you would feel awkward, as you say, sitting there thinking because people would be looking at you. We feel like we should either be consuming or creating content all the time right you got to be doing something and (laughs) if you're if it looks like you're not doing something something's wrong talk about the thought process that you mentioned walk me through that yeah and yeah so the thought process this is this can become your guidepost as you are navigating all the business right it sort of directs the work you should be doing and again just like you know painting a contrasting picture with sales um, you know, sales, we have great marketing or great sales models, right? You have Huthway, Richardson, um, everybody sort of spun these different ways. But there's a couple of generally held ideas on how the sales uh, training, sales development process goes. We don't have one for life sciences, and there's really probably not a good one for marketing anyway. Um, you know, everything has bec- moved into more of a tactical view. So we've created um, our kind of marketing framework, our line marketing framework for life sciences and thinking about it. And no surprise, it begins with customer obsession. Um, and we really focus on segmentation where we're making choices and really trying to make sense of customers based on their needs and outcomes as opposed to just demographics or type or things like that. And then it's really built on using a journey map and then insights. And and together that obsession should be setting the trajectory for everything else you're doing. 
for marketing strategy, which are the choices of what to do and not do. And then when you've made your choice, how are you delivering on that, right? How are you driving in-market engagement? How are you um, delivering, delivering flawlessly for customers? And so having sort of that flow of the work that we're doing, and I think oftentimes we spend a lot of it in the back half or in circles in the back half because we haven't done the time in that customer obsession stage, and then also taking time to clarify choices. And then really weaving through all of that is what's your customer stance, right? Are you outside in? Are you prioritizing? And what are your metrics? And if you can kind of think about marketing in that bucket with that definition, that provides you with the guidance on where you should be spending your time, the types of conversations you should be having, and to help stop some of the churn, stop some of the rework um, that we often see, you know, marketers and their leaders suffering from. That sounds good. Talk about how life science marketers might not be meeting customer needs. What, what's missing in their skills in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I think it boils down to value propositions. I, I think life science marketers, um, for the most part, are really struggling to create relevant value propositions, particularly for patients. So I'll give you an example. Let's look at Yeti. So for those who don't know Yeti, Yeti is um, the cooler brand. So if you go to your sporting goods store, there's probably a whole section dedicated to these coolers, very premium. Um, and they also have a, a ton of gear that goes along with it. But if you look back before they came on the market, coolers were a commodity. I mean, they, they're ugly. They kept stuff cool. Who cared? And they probably cost 25 bucks. When Yeti came in, um, they weren't going to be on this sort of incremental features and benefits game. They actually reframed the entire industry for, for kind of sports gear and coolers and all of that. And what they did is they said, rather than get caught up on the cooler, let me look at the outcomes that my customer segment wants to achieve. And I think in this case, you know, my take on it is it's, you know, if you look at Yeti advertising, it's about reconnecting your soul with nature, right? It's very uplifting. Um, for those who haven't seen it, it's worth Googling a little bit and, and check out a couple of their, their videos. It's just, it's like this identity that they've been able to tap into. And then they said, okay, so that's what our priority segment wants. And then they explored the pain point that was getting in the way of it. And maybe it was something like, let's have a cooler that keeps things cool all weekend long, right? I don't have to keep refilling it with ice because I'm out in the remote area. Um, and they worked on technology to be able to solve that pain point. And then also something that would visually fit into the furnishings that I brought along with me out to nature. And by tapping into all of this, they took a, a business that was effectively a $25 item business. And I mean, you can't walk out of the Yeti product beyond like about $250, $300. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nuts. It's $250 for a cooler and, and, and upwards. Um, but interestingly, when we talk about value, is this demographic is willing to pay $250 for a cooler. And when they go down the road to their pharmacy and they're told to pay $250 for a copay for a medicine that will save their life, they balk. And I think that really hones into us in marketing of how are we tapping into price perceptions and how, how can we find a way to frame our offer in a meaningful, motivating way. Um, and I think that is really the skill of, of getting, at that, um, getting at that value proposition. And it'll loop right back. I sound like a broken record. It's back to customer obsession. And you're not going to just 
jump into value proposition, right? So if you just start diving into value proposition, you're going to head down the path of inside out and your features and benefits. You have to start earlier up in the marketing process and really think about what are the pain points, you know, what's going along the pain points in their journey. Um, consumer goods do a great job of this. You know, they say in the, in the journey that the customer is taking, right, to achieve their outcome, there's various moments that matter. And then they focus their energy on these critical moments that matter with the right information and right experiences that activate customers. And you can look at any of the products you purchase sort of in your daily life. So like, let's go back to life sciences. So my mom has a um, chronic debilitating disease and she needs to go to her local hospital once a month for an infusion. So at the start of her diagnosis and treatment, right, a moment that matters, she gets this big, beautiful patient education kit with lots of little brochures and booklets and a journal and everything. Well, let's see, is that the right information and experience? Well, let's see, the condition um, is one that uh, cognitively you can get overwhelmed really easily. You have to do things kind of sequentially. So it's way too much information all at once, too many pieces and parts, and it's like, I'll deal with this later. And then they put a journal in there so she can journal your notes and thoughts and feelings and stuff. Now, they did a jo good job putting it in big font with big lines, right, so she can manage. But another aspect of her condition is dexterity. So she barely can sign a check. She barely can write an address in an envelope. How is she going to sit and journal in this glossy little book that's this, you know, about a five by seven? You know, it doesn't make sense. It, it's not something that's meaningful. But I could see back in the conference room, you know, the agency, the junior market, everybody's high-fiving each other. This is a great, really beautiful piece. But it failed at the moment that mattered. You know what really matters at the beginning of her treatment? Help getting through the pre-auth process, that she has to be on multiple calls to do it. So it was sort of like not the right information at the right time. You know, and the other moment that matters, and another big moment for her, is actually getting the infusion. So it's a, I think like a two-hour infusion. She has an appointment at nine. They called her the day before. Um, you're confirming you're going to be there. Yes, yes. So she gets to the site. Well, it's not until she physically arrives that they order up the medicine. So before she starts her two-hour infusion, she's waiting for an hour or two to get the medicine called up from the pharmacy to the infusion place or the fusion room. So she's sitting in this chair. So imagine you're sitting in a chair, you're sitting in an air, airline seat for three or four hours. You know, how comfortable is that? Not to mention having a condition. So it's like that, that moment of, if not of discomfort and having to sit for so long and having to wait. I mean, people wanna know why adherence doesn't happen. It's not a phone call reminder. It's what's happening sitting in the chair and half of her day shot, and now she's exhausted when she tries to get home. So she doesn't need reminders. She doesn't need a glossy um, patient brochure. She just needs a really good experience going, going and getting that infusion done. Yeah, that's a great example because when you started this answer, I'm thinking, well, what, you know, about those moments that matter and, you know, balking at the copay, for example, and how would you do things differently? But mm -hmm. Your example is a good one. You know, there are things there that don't work for her. And I'm guessing, not a doctor, not um, of any type, you know, they, maybe there's something about the infusion that they, in, if it needs to be um, treated in some way before it's delivered and it's expensive and you can't do it twice. So if she's not there, 
they're not going to start the process. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that might be what's going right. on. But what can yeah, we do with her too. while they're, while she's there to talk to her, give her the information that came in all those brochures that you sent her three weeks ago, right? <laughs> yeah. Something, yeah. watch a video. I don't know what it would be. I mean, I'm, I don't need to solve that problem, but you can sort of see there are opportunities there to, to change the process. Yeah, and a lot of times too, I mean, we'll, we'll be working with clients and, and sometimes the skepticism is like, but I'm in the company. I can't change the hospital. I can't change the broken healthcare system, right? And so that'll be the pushback, right? Is I can only work in this normal, narrow band of product or service that I'm offering. And I think that harkens back to the point we were discussing earlier around the difference between sort of Marcom and motivating communications. I mean, marketing is a is essentially being an entrepreneur, right? Solving pain points, addressing unmet needs. I mean, that's the heart of value creation. So just on a very simple point, like if I were the marketing team for this product that my, my mom's infusion, I would be investing my dollars into educating hospital administration staff, sharing the pain points, sharing some research with patients, um, maybe doing a bit of um, speaker program related to how do you create a winning experience? How do you what do you do in those two hours? If you can't remove those two hours, how do you keep the patient engaged? How do you offer value so they feel like they're having a good experience um, at your site of care? Um, any patient materials, I wouldn't be sending her a big kit. I would give her little chunks of things, you know, maybe a checklist to bring with you to your first infusion that you can use to advocate for yourself if you're having a crappy experience, right? I mean, that would be something really useful. And so we can't, Yes, we cannot as marketers overhaul the entire, you know, healthcare system, right? I mean, it feels overwhelming, but we can influence and we can nudge change, but we can only do it if we're obsessed about the customer. Yes. Yeah. And definitely, um, yeah, motivating what you say there to think about all those little steps and be creative about how you deal with those. So um, we haven't talked about digital. I think you've cleverly or intentionally avoided talking about <laughs> digital. Um, talk Life about that a little bit. Is- are spellbound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, digital. Yeah. You saw my reaction to it. So yeah, you know, we're spellbound by digital. It's interesting and, and not surprising, right? We live in a global social digital world. It's today's times, right? But I feel like marketers, We've been misguided, right? It, it's become this shiny object. And, and what the discussion in the conference rooms are, what our leaders are saying to us is, hey, figure out digital marketing, figure out omni-channel marketing, figure out content marketing, figure out influencer marketing. Shouldn't we be doing these things, right? And when that happens, who's at the center of the conversation? Digital, not the customer. And instead, I think as marketers, um, what we should be, we should be doing two things. First of all, we should be asking, how has digital changed my customer expectations, right? So doctors, we'll take, let's just take pharma brands, for instance, doctors shop on Amazon, they stream movies, um, they Google things, they watch YouTube videos right on their phones. And just because they're in their office in a clinical setting doesn't mean their expectations reset to 1990. I mean, we need to be really understanding um, how has digital changed our customers. So rather than spending time force-fitting 
these different digital buzzwords, we should be starting back with dig with customer obsession and really using it to figure out how we do how how their needs and expectations and pain points have changed. And then from there, as marketers, we have to temper everybody and say, you know, listen, digital is a tool in our toolbox. Let's start back with what problems do my customer does my customer have? What's the right information at the right time in the right place? And which of my many tools, digital being one of them, is right? I mean, it's interesting if you look at um, Sephora. So I'm not sure how many listeners are avid Sephora shoppers. It's a retail cosmetic company, and they do an amazing job blending sort of their online digital stuff with their in-store stuff. And it has come not because, you know, they didn't embark on their transformation to say, oh, we need to digitize. They said, how do we create a seamless kind of flawless pain, you know, remove these pain points from the kind of discovery um, uh, option exploration, needs exploration and utilization process. And sometimes digital made sense and sometimes retail or sometimes some other intervention made sense. So if we start with what's, what's the problem we're trying to solve and then where does digital fit in, then we can start to do it. I think we're digital marketing skills come in is everybody learns about all these digital tools and then it's about using the tools rather than leveraging the tools to solve a customer problem. And so that was a little bit of a visceral reaction you got when you talked about digital is, um, you know, not getting kind of seduced into it as the shiny object, but really thinking about, um, you know, what problem you're trying to solve. And you know what, Chris, it goes back to the, the other main skill around um, personal capacity. And, you know, if you are not, if you're, you know, your boss is saying, go down this digital path, do this, and you're executing to keep up with it, and you're trying to scramble, you aren't taking the time to ha ask those questions, right? So it goes back to this need of how do we create more headspace? How do we have more conversation space to do the upfront examination, reflection, make sense? You know, it's, it's, we have time to do it twice, but we don't have time to do it right the first time. So really being able to, I think as a leader, um, making that space and kind of rewarding sort of that thinking process. And then as an individual marketer, protecting that because no one's going to go up to you and say, hey, think about this. I mean, really protecting sort of your creativity and your um, strategic market, you know, thinking skills and protecting that time and protecting your own capacity so that you can come come with new solutions, come with new ways of seeing the customer. And I think that's where you can really make a difference in a company. Nice. Yeah. What's the problem we're trying to solve? That, that makes total sense. It is easy to exactly. get caught up in the digital wave for everything. I just went to a conference. The first word in the title of the conference was digital. Uh, and it's a big deal. Yeah. But um, And, and a yeah. huge opportunity. But I think, you know, I, I like your way of thinking about what are we trying to do here first and then where does digital make sense? Digital actually started back in well, probably prior to the 80s with email things and email campaigns. So it's not like digital is all of a sudden now. We've been sort of obsessed on it. But if you look even back, there's a great article by McKinsey in, in 1960s talking about, you know, the marketing challenges of the day. And it's like reading a playbook of what needs to happen how many years later, you know, 40, 50 years later. So try not to get caught up in that sort of, you know, allure of digital where it's, it's really it's a core marketing that's really more important. Right. Yeah. And I can imagine, I mean, everything from here on out to some degree is going to be some new kind of digital. 
But the fundamentals mm-hmm. of marketing, as you say, have not changed in 50 years. Um, so what do marketers need to do to avoid being sucked into those tactical sales activities? Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, we were talking at the beginning about culture change, you know, and so this is a paradigm shift. So I'm not going to, you know, we say change is a, is a contact sport. You know, it's like rugby. You're going to get a few teeth knocked out. It, you know, it ain't pretty, um, you know, and so definitely recognize that. And I think probably one of the biggest heresies in life science marketing is to call the sales team a channel. Um, in most other industries, sales in, in person selling is a channel and it's um, okay. Here in life sciences, somehow you offend people by calling sales a channel. Now, listen, it's a very important channel. It's a, you know, this, this group is, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the customer on a daily basis. Um, it's an opportunity to hear, learn what's going on and the influence is tremendous. But it's also a very expensive channel. And in today's global social and digital world where decision making isn't always happening in that one-to-one exchange, we have to be very judicious about where we're deploying this channel, you know, where it matters most. And we also have to think about how are we integrating it with all of the other channels that your decision maker is interacting in. And that's the way you can maximize dollars. So I think is really, you know, trying to view the world that way. I recognize that sometimes having that conversation can um, maybe feel career limiting, but that's the conversation we need to be having and help um, sales teams make those changes and see the value they bring, but reframed in, in a different setting. So I think that's sort of one one thing to do. And, and we're big proponents. A lot of work that we do is in sort of building productive marketing sales partnerships. Um, we often joke that marketing is from Mars and sales is for Venus, you know, to kind of evoke the old John Gray book from, from a couple decades ago, right? Each planet is jockeying for who's going to be, you know, most important in the solar system. And nobody really understands or appreciates what, you know, the other person's role is. But when you think about it, we should be considering who these planets, you know, the marketing planet and the sales planet are revolving around. You know, the sun is the customer. And so we each have a critical role to play. And I think marketers owe it to sales to really listen and incorporate their perspective early on to offer a clear strategy and why we've chosen that direction and help them understand and make sense of why what they're seeing locally may or may not be in line with what we're doing at a more regional or macro level and make sure that they have the training and the tools and helping them um, reframe their work in this, in this world where we're much more omni-channel. And I think um, it's going to help marketer productivity and focus and really help increase a marketer's authority and influence in the organization. I mean, not to mention kind of the impact you're going to make with the most important group, which are your customers and, and patients and, and others that you serve in the healthcare ecosystem. Nice. Well, this has been really helpful. I think if, if you this is the first episode of Life Science Marketing Radio you're listening to, you are very lucky because now you should go listen to all the others. But this should be like the, the <laughs> course opener if I were going to build a course out of it, right? Um, <laughs> Michelle you, Benton, Chris. this has been super fun to talk to you today. Um, where can people go to find out more about you or get in touch with you? Sure. So our website is growwithlime.com. And we also have a company page on LinkedIn, and that's Lime LLC. So you can follow us there. We do a lot of thought leadership, um, and you can DM me through LinkedIn. And our Twitter handle is Grow with Lime. 
Awesome. So I'll put links to all of those in the show notes, of course. And thank you again. Great, Chris. Thank you so much. And thanks for all the work you're doing too, bringing some some important thinking and, and different ideas to the life science marketing community. It's been great to be here. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. It's also just plain fun. When I say it's fun, I mean it. It's been a pleasure to talk to so many smart, generous people over the last seven and a half years or so. If you're having fun, you should invite your colleagues. You probably know a few people who would enjoy the podcast, and I'd be very grateful if you shared it with them. I'll be back in two weeks, and we'll be talking about the state of the job market in life science. Bye-bye.